Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're talking about OECD, as in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The OECD has recently issued some major proposals related to global taxation. Given the potential impact of these proposals to multinational companies, this is something you don't want to ignore. And for those controllers listening, that you don't want to just leave to your tax VP. And don't worry, even for US-only companies, this episode is worth listening to as these OECD proposals have the potential to at least indirectly impact US tax policy. This is going to require a number of different stakeholders. Just make sure there's an education going on and then there is the collaboration to pull all of those thoughts together. I think, though, if we accept, and I very much do, uh, it's not a question of whether these things happen, it's a question of when they happen. I'm joined today by PwC partner Jennifer Spang from our national office and Pat Brown, PwC's co-leader of Washington National Tax Services. Jen and Pat are joining me today to talk about the OECD and to provide us with the latest. Let's get started. So Jen, Pat, welcome back and looking forward to our conversation talking about the OECD. This is a topic we've talked about before, but it's definitely been quite some time. And Jen, maybe just starting with you, I'm not sure OECD is mean that like just rolls off the tongue of most accountants and probably a lot of our listeners. So can you just remind them what it is, what it stands for and why we're talking about it? Sure. So the OECD is an organization of member countries. And I think that's the most important first thing. It's an organization of member countries. It's focused on policies, global policies, and really establishing frameworks But importantly, it is not the legal, it's not the law setter, if you will, or the regulator setter. It is a group of member countries that once the frameworks are agreed, they go back to their own jurisdictions and then through their own domestic procedures, law, all that goes with it, they would implement any of the areas. And and importantly, we're obviously talking tax today, but the OECD focuses on frameworks and more than just tax, Um, just happens to be that's the content we're in today. Um, Over the recent years, the OECD has been focused on increasingly on a perceived mismatch between local tax systems for different countries and how those are applied by multinational enterprises to their profits. And so projects that we're talking about today are really focused on that mismatch. And there are two of them. So uh, uniquely called Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So Wow, very uh, unique names there. Very creative. <laughs> very creative names. Um, so Pillar 1 at a high level is really focused on the reallocation of profits. So that's different than currently how we think about our current, let's say, transfer pricing rules that really focus on where people and property exist. These rules would instead focus on where the customer exists at a super high level. Um, So that's pillar one, really the reallocation of global profits or some portion of global profits around the world. Um, The second pillar, pillar two, is focused on a global minimum tax. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about what that looks like. But that's really focused on establishing a minimum tax on essentially um, all companies around the world. So, Jen, we did not say what OECD stands for. The Organization (laughs) for Economic Cooperation and Development. All right. Very good. Which is why we always just say OECD. OECD. Yes, that's definitely quite a mouthful. And I'm going to have some more questions on OECD later, but let's just jump straight into it. So, Pat, what's the latest on where the OECD is with this project? Yeah, so a, a lot of the attention more recently, uh, Heather, has been on Pillar 2, as as Jen mentioned. And that's where we've seen kind of the most activity, the most potential movement. Uh, although, as we've seen throughout this project, things kind of seem to go in fits and starts. So start to move forward looks like moving forward quite rapidly and then run into a snag and maybe slow things down. Pillar 2, as Jen mentioned, is really the so-called minimum tax portion of the project. Um, And what this is intended to do is to look at a multinational's operations by country. And that's important um, because that is very different from the way U.S. multinationals think about 
applying U.S. tax concepts to their foreign operations uh, under current U.S. law. So this would look at a multinational's operations in every country around the world and on the face of it, ask a very simple question. Are you subject to tax at a 15% rate, what I'll call a 15% effective rate? And I know that's going to make all the accountants say, ah, it's your rate for U.S. GAAP purposes or your rate for IFRS. Not so fast as Jim is going to get into. It's a lot more nuanced than that, to be sure. But the basic concept here is, are you paying tax in every jurisdiction around the world where you're doing business at a rate of 15% over time? Okay, so that, again, sounds an awful lot like an effective tax rate concept. In terms of what's been happening lately, the OECD released in December what they called model rules. And this is relevant and important because, as Jen said, you know, the OECD is effectively a standard setting body. Right? They don't make law. So they released these model rules, which essentially are intended to be the template for what then goes forward and gets put into law at the national level. OK, the model rules were about 60 pages in length. Um, As you can imagine, there's a lot of complexity associated with doing a what I'll call a per country minimum tax all around the world for for a multinational's operations. So at 60 pages in length, there's a a fair framework there for how this thing is going to work, but a whole lot of questions. Right. And, And obviously a whole lot of interpretation. Well, this is what the words say. What do they mean? How do I think about it in this fact pattern? Um. So much awaited and expected to come hot on the heels of the model rules was the commentary. Think of it in some respects almost like legislative history, right? So model rules are sort of the le- at some level the legislative text. Then you'd have like a committee report that would sort of, here's what we had in mind when we wrote these rules. So Pat, I'm going to pause you. So Jen, would this be like an exposure draft and then the basis for conclusions if we were generally putting this in like an, you know terminology that people would be familiar with? Uh, so not the exposure draft because the model rules are the model rules. Okay. Uh, but I would say, as Pat was saying that, I often tell people when I'm talking to accounting people, the commentary is like the basis of conclusion. Okay. So I was part right. Okay. Yeah, that's no, helpful. you are. And it's, it's, I think it's something that's, you know, worth raising. Yep. All right. So Pat, go on. Sorry. Yeah. And so, no, that's great. Um, and so the commentary was, you know, the expectation when the model rules came out in December was the commentary was going to come out sort of immediately thereafter, like sometime in January. We didn't end up getting the commentary until March. Um, and, and a lot of that was because when the model rules came out, almost immediately, a lot of questions were raised. Right? Taxpayers, advisors essentially went to their, um, their representatives from their, from their countries at the OECD and said, what do these things mean? How do I think about this and this, this fact pattern? Uh, and so the process from the OECD's perspective which is a cumbersome process of trying to get agreement across all of these countries, um, slowed down a bit as they tried to take on board some of the issues that were being raised in the immediate after the immediate release of the model rules. So we didn't see the commentary until late March. The commentary is several hundred pages, but still there are a lot of questions that are not answered in the commentary. So we have model rules, about 60 some pages. We have commentary that tries to answer some of these questions. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to take a, take a uh, run at the OECD here. Like I think it's, it's good quality work that they have put in this, but there are a lot of questions that are not answered. And in some cases, the commentary really doesn't do more than just restate what's in the model rules themselves. And then you're left with, well, that's great. That's what the model rules said. I still don't know what it means as applied to particular fact patterns. So there's a lot that still has to be worked through, but in terms of timing, the OECD has talked about these rules taking effect starting January 1st, 2023, right? So we're sitting here in the middle of April, exactly. And you're thinking, whoa, January 1st, 2023, that is literally right around the corner. It is right around the corner. And so there's a lot that still has to happen if countries are going to be able to hold to that timeline. And we're already seeing some indications that some countries, some countries are saying, we think we can do it. A number of countries are saying that seems kind of aggressive. So the timeline here is one of the big open questions that companies have to work through. When is this actually going to start to impact me? All right. I'm going to come back to the timeline. I do have a side question, though, because, Jen, you talked about pillar one is determining nexus. And then this pillar two is the minimum tax. Don't you have to figure out your nexus and then figure out your minimum tax? And if I jumped straight, if I jumped way into the podcast, I'm sorry, it's just it felt it feels a little out of order. 
Well, let, well, me, let me let me try and do that, Jen. But I want you to I want yeah, to get your okay. thoughts as well. It's a great um, question. It is a great question. Great it is a question. great question. And mechanically, the way the model rules of Pillar Two are organized is they tell you whatever your profit reallocation was under Pillar One, you take that into account before you apply the Pillar Two rules. One of the things, of course, that we are seeing, and again, Jen alluded to it, well, Pillar Two is moving forward. Pillar One seems to be languishing a little bit behind. So what do you do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a very practical question, Heather. It's like, how do I apply these rules? Because I first have to figure out where my profit is by jurisdiction so I can apply my minimum tax by jurisdiction. Doesn't Pillar 1 tell me where my profit is by jurisdiction for this purpose? And the answer to your question is you're exactly right. Presumably, not that this is clearly stated anywhere, presumably if Pillar 2 moves ahead before Pillar 1, you, you apply Pillar 2 concepts without Pillar 1, and then when Pillar 1 comes along later and it reallocates profit across jurisdictions, you then essentially layer that into your Pillar 2 c- calculations. If this sounds messy, it's because it is going to be very messy. That is very clear. All right. And I think, again, for the benefit of our listeners who may have been a long time since you listened to our podcast where we got deeper into Pillar 1, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is things like I'm making internet sales in a country but then because I have no employees there, I have no nexus there. And so I'm not paying tax. Is that equitable or not? And we don't have to get too sidetracked by pillar one, but it is an interesting ordering here. Yeah. And you do have it correct. Um, and, and they clearly do interplay and that, that pillar one is really focused on like leveling it out to where allocating it differently. So in theory, if you've allocated it differently, do you really have a minimum tax anymore? But without doing that, you don't know the second. So it's everything you've asked and and, I, and everything Pat's walked through. I think it's it's complex. All right. Well, so for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to put that pillar one question aside. We'll focus on, on pillar two. So I want to pick up, Pat, right where you left off, which is you're talking a little bit about timing. And so just to go back to what Jen said at the beginning about, you know, so OECD sort of makes recommendations countries then have to enact their own laws? Is that the way, like from a practical point of view, this is going to work, Pat? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we often say, you know, the OECD doesn't have an army, right? Uh, the OECD has no mechanism for forcing countries uh, to actually enact this stuff into their national laws, nor, and this is important for purposes of Pillar 2, nor does the OECD have any mechanism to ensure conformity, right? To ensure that everyone who implements Pillar 2 does so in the same way. And when you get into the nuts and bolts of how Pillar 2 applies, that potentially creates some real issues for companies. Because, of course, if you're a large multinational company, you've got operations in, let's say, 100 countries, um, you know, maybe you don't have 100 different interpretations of Pillar 2 to deal with, but you're certainly going to have more than one to deal with. And in some cases, what you may end up facing is one jurisdiction saying, I have looked at your Pillar 2 computation and it's fine from my perspective, you don't owe additional top-up tax. And another country saying, well, I interpret the model rules differently. And because I interpret the model rules differently and that interpretation, that different interpretation is in my national law, you are going to be subject to additional tax under my interpretation of Pillar 2. And so, you know, what that presents for companies is, Inconsistent application, a lot of complexity, disputes, double taxation. Um, It would be great if there was a mechanism in Pillar 2 to essentially force conformity, right? Now, the normal way you would look at something like that is, well, let's have some sort of like a multilateral convention, a treaty Mm -hmm. that every every country would sign on to and would essentially bind themselves to, you know, so, so that there would be a common interpretation and some sort of a dispute resolution body part of that. That, interestingly, is part of Pillar 1. That concept is part of Pillar 1. It is not part of Pillar 2. So Pillar 2, you know, again, I sort of, to to overuse the army analogy, I sometimes refer to it as an all-volunteer army. Countries that want to do it, do it. Countries that don't want to do it, don't do it. But the idea that the OECD says in the model rules is if you do it, you're going to do it this way. But again, they don't have a mechanism to force that. And so what's to prevent a country from saying, well, I kind of did it that way. I mean, I sort of mostly did it that way. I did it enough that way, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, Pat, I want to get into some specifics of what we're seeing for some countries. But do we have, is there a past precedent where we've had these kind of sort of sweeping changes that then had to be voluntarily adopted? And what's been the relative success? Yeah. So, so the answer is yes and no. Maybe I'd say not really. Okay. Um, this is by far the most ambitious thing the OECD has ever undertaken, by far. Um, but, you know, the OECD in up to now, there's two areas in the tax world where the OECD has been extraordinarily influential. One is that the OECD has a what we call a model tax convention or a model bilateral tax treaty. Um, and that is just what it sounds like. It's a model. So countries, when they're entering into bilateral treaty negotiations, in a lot of cases, they start with the OECD model. But it's a bilateral negotiation between two countries. They make deviations from it. But the OECD's interpretation of what the words mean is considered authoritative. It's often cited by judges when they're in trying to interpret treaties in, in court decisions, not just U.S. judges, but other, other countries' judges as well, will look to the OECD's interpretation. So they are authoritative in an influential sense, but not in a kind of legally binding sense in, in, the, in the model tax convention. The OECD also has done tremendously valuable work in the transfer pricing space, transfer pricing guidelines. But note the word there, guidelines, mm -hmm. right? So these are the OECD's interpretation of the way the arm's length standard and transfer pricing rules should be interpreted by countries around the world. It is, again, considered you know, authoritative in the sense of it's, it's sort of the gold standard in terms of the way to think about this. But there's nothing that prevents a country from saying, I don't I don't agree. That's just not the way I'm interpreting my laws. Um, and so this whole concept of, yeah, everybody's going to do pillar two the same way. Um, they've never tried to do something like that uh, through the process like this. And we haven't even gotten to the rules yet. Just conceptually, it sounds complicated. Before we dig into some of the rules, though, I know you've already seen some reaction from different I'll call it areas of the world or countries. So what what have we seen for some initial reaction? Yeah, so the, the fascinating one here is Europe. Europe went very hot out of the gate, the European Union, very hot out of the gate to say, we're doing this. So the OECD uh, released their model rules on December 21st, I believe. Like a day later, the European Union released a draft directive. Um, so obviously they've gotten an advanced copy of the model rules. Yes. They, it's not surprising. Uh, so they released their draft directive, which is, hey, here's our version of a directive. The process in the EU, of course, is a directive gets adopted at the EU level and then countries introduce it in their national laws, something that's consistent with the directive. Right. So now you're kind of two steps away from the model rules, model rules to a directive, directive to national laws. But because this relates to a matter of what we call direct taxation, the European Union, every member country has to agree, every country. So it is there's a unanimity requirement on matters of direct taxation within the European Union. And it looked like they were on track to do that. But most recently in the so-called ECOFIN meeting, so this is a European Union finance minister's meeting, one country, and it only takes one, in this case it was Poland, raised their hand and said, we are not prepared to move forward with this directive because... We believe that pillar one and pillar two should move forward together. Now, that was always the understanding. And Heather, to your point from earlier, your question from earlier, like, it sounds like these things kind of should be moving in lockstep. Mm -hmm. They're both affecting taxation. That's essentially what Poland is saying. These things should be moving in lockstep. And by the way, that was always what we were told. Now, suddenly, pillar two, we're, we're being asked to sign off on this and move it forward. Where's pillar one? Mm -hmm. Pillar one's kind of bogged down because... There are treaty issues associated with with Pillar One. So it's it's harder. And it's mm -hmm. also, as Jen mentioned, it's about reallocating taxing rights, which means you have winners and losers amongst countries. Right. It's not just we all get to grab more revenue from multinational right. companies. It's some countries are going to get more. Some countries are going to get less. That's hard. It's hard for countries to come to agreement on that. So Poland is essentially really thrown kind of a bit of a spanner in the works on this to say, well, at least within Europe, we need to slow down. What does that mean for other countries? So we've seen the UK indicating that they still want to move forward in 2023. Just earlier this week, Australia indicated they still want to move forward in 2023. We will see if that holds. I think there are a lot of countries who would be eager to be second to implement the model rules and have them in place. But I'm not sure there are as many that are really, when push comes to shove, are going to be eager to be first. Curious about the U.S. Should we wait and talk about that once we run through the rules or how does that interact with anything going on in Congress right now? 
Yeah, so I'll, I will just I can cover the U.S. relatively quickly. There is no contemplation that the U.S. will will implement precisely the model rules, because why would we? We have to do something differently because we're the U.S., right? We have to make it more complicated somehow. The, the reconciliation legislation that passed the House of Representatives in the fall but has not moved forward in the Senate would have made some changes to our international rules that would have made them look more like Pillar 2, so quite a bit closer to Pillar 2. And there's been some speculation that if the U.S. modified its rules in that, in that way, they would be considered good enough. Okay, Mm. that legislation hasn't moved forward. It's possible it moves forward this spring or into this summer. If it doesn't move forward, then you would have the U.S. with its current law really not adopting anything that looks like Pillar 2. And again, that raises some questions. Well, if the U.S. doesn't do this, will other countries still be willing to do it? Mm -hmm. If so, will they do it and then apply their minimum taxes to U.S. companies in a way that could give rise to double taxation? Just a huge number of questions around what will the U.S. do? When will it do it? And what will the implications be? Which the answer is, of course, we don't know. All right. Well, it sounds like a topic for a follow-up podcast. So <laughs> we've done all this lead up and kind of hit this at a high level. But what are some of the highlights of the model rules? So I think the simplest way to talk about the model rules is this concept of a 15% minimum tax, right? So the rate is 15%. Fundamentally, what do you need to understand? The rate is 15%. It's applied on a per-country basis. And there is an attempt, and Jen's way better at explaining this than I am, to be sure, but there is an attempt to figure out what that rate is over time, right? So if you don't pay cash taxes in a jurisdiction in a given year, let's say year one, you lost $100, year two, you make $100. So you have $100 of profit in year two. Well, where's your 15% tax? Well, I didn't pay 15% tax in year two because I lost $100 in year one. That gave me a net operating loss that offsets my cash tax in year two, right? So there's an attempt to measure this over time. And that whole concept of measuring over time is where a great deal of the complexity comes in in these rules. For an accounting audience, a lot of folks would look at that and say, well, this doesn't sound that hard. This sounds like why you have deferred taxes to deal with timing differences. And if the OECD had picked up the concept of of deferred taxes, The model rules would still be complicated. I'm not suggesting deferred tax accounting is easy, but at least there would be a framework. Um, They've sort of picked it up, but sort of haven't. And Jen's way more, way deeper on this than I am, but they've sort of picked it up and sort of haven't. And that is giving rise to some disconnects and some real concerns. So, Jen, I was already a little mind blown just thinking the complexity of dealing with this with deferred taxes. So when he says they sort of have and sort of haven't, how are they thinking about for example, this NOL in the example? Well, so if we take a step back, what I'd say is, so the calculation of this effective tax rate, you've got covered taxes divided by your globe income. And so that covered taxes starts with current taxes. So imagine like your current tax provision in the financial statements. Um, But then it's adjusted by certain items. So for example, any uncertain tax positions are pulled out of there. Um, you know, there's some adjustments for like refundable credits and then, uh, you know, we'll talk about globe income and then, you know, you'll adjust for those kind of items, but the biggest by far adjustment to covered taxes is deferred taxes. And so when you think about deferred taxes, as Pat said, they used the deferred model, but they didn't exactly use the deferred model. And this is like whether you're under a U.S. gap or IFRS, by the way. So this would be a consistent sort of, um, question. So when you think about deferred taxes, two things happen. First of all, to the extent you have a statutory rate in excess of 15%, you have to adjust the deferred uh, tax adjustment down to the 15%. So think about the U.S. We measure deferred taxes at 21. When a U.S. company were to make its adjustment um, for deferred taxes, it would need to remeasure that using a 15% statutory rate So that's disconnect number one from the deferred model. The second adjustment or, you know, outer limit, if you will, deals only with deferred tax liabilities. And so for that, what it says is basically, in general, you can adjust for your deferred tax liabilities if they will reverse. So if they'll be paid out in five years, if they won't, then you can't adjust for them. You would adjust just when it happens. 
However, the good news on that is that the model rules do also apply or provide a list of items for which companies don't need to track that reversal. So the biggest one that we talk about by far is cost recovery, so depreciation. So when you think about depreciation, that is a very common temporary or timing difference between financial statements and tax. And for that one, even though very commonly they reverse after five years, you will be able to make a deferred tax adjustment for that. So that's kind of a high level about covered taxes um, and, and that deferred tax adjustment that, that Pat mentioned. And I think we should come back to that, but maybe we should go back to globe income and talk about that. And then we can talk about sort of how that all comes back together. Yes, definitely. And because I, I do know I jumped ahead because like I said, I'm trying to do all these calculations <laughs> in my mind and it's not working. Um, but yes, so let's start simplistically. We, you know, we, we're saying here that you have a statutory rate, you have this minimum rate. What, so does that mean if they're the same, you don't have to do anything or how does this work and where does this globe income come in? Yeah. So it is a great question. And the answer is no, right? So it's, I think a common misconception that um, as long as our statutory rate is 15 above 15%, I'm good um, because that's not the case. So first of all, it's an effective tax rate calculation. And going back to something Pat mentioned earlier, on this audience, when you say, oh, we deal with effective tax rates all the time, we've got this. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is it's not an effective tax rate just off your financial statements. It's an adjusted one. And we just talked about the tax element of that. So that's you know an example of where that gets adjusted. But globe income is, um, there are a number of adjustments to uh, what I'll call financial statement income to get to your globe income. So let's talk about what those are. So as Pat's mentioned, you do this on an entity by entity basis. So I might slip in the word constituent entity or separate entity basis, um, but it's based upon the gap of your ultimate parent entity. So imagine you're talking about a U.S. multinational. You would be calculating U.S. GAAP financial statements for each of your separate legal entities. And I'm not even going to get into what happens when you have like flow through entity or non-taxable entities. Mm -hmm. I'm not even mm -hmm. going to touch that for the purpose of this <laughs> podcast. But the point is you on a separate entity level need to go and calculate your U.S. GAAP financials for that entity. So just fundamentally, Heather, you know, um, as well as I do, that that doesn't necessarily exist today. Mm -hmm. You certainly have information that flows into your consolidated financial statements, but at a separate legal entity, not exactly and certainly not cleanly. Um, think about all the top site adjustments, and right. estimate, uh, sorry, adjustments that need to be booked. So that's, I think, just point one when you're thinking about that globe income. So from there, then, what is globe income? We're still just trying to get to what is globe income. <laughs> so globe income starts from the financial statement income based on the U.S. parents gap for the separate legal entity. And then and you Jen, make sorry. So yeah. if you were the parent was an IFRS reporter, then it this would whole IFRS. thing would be the same, but IFRS. That's right. Okay. Yep. All right. That's Go absolutely on. right. Yeah. Um, and by the way, those two will be different. And I'll, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example of um, that we've been spending some time on. But so when you look at that separate company, it's supposed to be pre-elimination, um, though there is some guidance in the model rules that seems to contradict some of that. But it's in theory pre-elimination, again, under the U.S. parent gap. Um, you make some adjustments to it. So some of it should be pretty obvious, like you're starting with net income, so you're going to back out your taxes. Um, there are some adjustments for dividends. There, there are a few adjustments that are required, and uh, there are some for um, gains and losses on certain assets um, are, are excluded. Um, but then there are also some elective changes or adjustments to your financial statement income for that entity. And I'll raise two that we get the most discussion on. Um, one of them is for stock-based compensation. So you as a company have the choice to elect to reflect your tax deduction for stock-based comp instead of your book. And that's important because if you're talking about a company that has significant windfalls, right, that excess tax deduction, then you will automatically, if you didn't 
adjust for this, you'll automatically end up in a top up tax, right? Because your tax covered tax, the numerator is based upon the cash taxes paid as a starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, uh, but your denominator is based on your financial statement income. So that only reflects, you know, book compensation with regard to that stock comp. So that's one you can elect into. Another one that um, we've had lots of conversations around is companies can elect where assets are fair valued. They can elect to use realized gains and losses versus unrealized gains and losses. So that's another adjustment um, for globe income. So suffice to say, you start from your financial statement income by legal entity, pre-elimination, arm's length, um, and then make these adjustments. But maybe just one other thing I'll throw out on the on that covered, t- sorry, on the pre-tax is just to say that you mentioned IFRS and U.S. GAAP. So we've talked about transfers of assets between related parties, and under U.S. GAAP, you know, we have a concept of common control transactions mm-hmm. where your basis on the transfer would be at carryover basis. But under IFRS, that same guidance doesn't exist. So in those cases, when you transfer assets, you're going to have, you know, obviously depends on the standard and the asset that I should say, it depends on the asset and the standard that applies, but could be cash, could be fair value, net cost, you know, whatever it might be. So clearly those could be different um, and I suspect will be different. So Jen, basically you're talking about a whole new set of books that companies would have to keep. Perfectly summarized. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now you've got your financial statements. You've got your consolidated financial statements. You've got, in a lot of countries, statutory reporting that's required. You've got tax returns all around the world. And then you'll have this. Globe books, I guess, is what they're called. So that's just your income. But now you also mentioned this adjusted covered tax. So... I would say that goes back to um, everything that we just talked about, where the adjustments for covered tax, so tax, you again, you start from your current tax provision, um, you have adjustments for uncertain tax positions, and all of those globe adjustments I just talked about, to the extent that there was tax expense or benefit related to those, you'd adjust those out, which you'd expect, right? But then the biggest adjustment for covered taxes is the deferred tax that we had the opportunity to kind of talk through just a couple of minutes ago. So that's the giant. Pat, maybe going back to you, we talked about this 15% and any of these adjustments seem like they could actually result then like I started above 15% and now all of a sudden I'm below 15%. So how are you sort of thinking about that? Yeah. So this is one of the real challenges and all we've talked about are challenges. Uh, (laughs) This is is one of the real challenges. Um, So you could very easily, Heather, uh, find yourself in a jurisdiction where your rate for gap purposes, you know, you like, okay, I'm going to compute my U.S. gap rate, but I'm going to only look at entities within this jurisdiction. And, oh, I'm at 19%. Uh, well, right. I'm fine. I'm above yeah. 15%. Pencils down, I'm done. Not so fast. To your point, you have this separate set of books that makes all these adjustments that Jen was talking about, in particular, capping your deferreds at 15%. So in a lot of cases, what companies are finding as they're starting to do these computations is my gap rate's above 15%, but my globe or pillar two rate is below 15%. Um, and so that can give rise to obviously top what we call top-up tax in circumstances where your expectation would be, well, I don't owe any tax um, or I shouldn't owe any tax. One of the most common areas where we are seeing that start to develop in, in practice is Let's take the United States as a jurisdiction, right? 21% federal rate, state rate on top of that. Your expectation would be, I'm going to be above 15%. Mm -hmm. I'm in the United States. This is not a low tax jurisdiction, right? Um, Okay, but now you do your pillar two computation. You cap your deferreds at 15%. Oh, and in addition, you have credits that you take every year against your U.S. tax liability for research, or you have credits for green energy investments, or you make investments in low-income housing, and that gives you a low-income housing credit. Um, The combination of these credits and incentives, which Congress obviously intended, so they're not sort of tax planning in the sense Mm -hmm. of like, I'm avoiding the tax that I'm supposed to pay. Congress is telling you, do this, and you'll get these benefits in the form of lower taxation. That coupled with this cap on deferreds is causing companies to find that their rate 
is dropping below 15%. Again, even in the US, even in a jurisdiction that we would say quintessentially is not a low tax jurisdiction. And that gives rise to the possibility that you're going to owe what we call, again, top-up tax under Pillar 2. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about that is you say, well, you're a U.S. company. The U.S. is going to do its own thing on Pillar 2. Mm-hmm. So why do I care if I drop below 15% in the U.S.? Well, the way the Pillar 2 rules are constructed, if the top jurisdiction, the ultimate parent entity, to use the terminology that Jen used, if the ultimate parent entity, if their jurisdiction does not implement an acceptable Pillar 2, other jurisdictions where the multinational has affiliates can come along and say, well, wait a minute, you're low taxed in this jurisdiction, and the ultimate parent did not impose the appropriate amount of top-up tax under Pillar 2, so I'm going to come along and impose additional tax in my jurisdiction. So if you're a U.S. multinational and you've got a subsidiary in France or you've got a subsidiary in Japan, and they introduce the Pillar 2 rules, they would first ask the question, has the jurisdiction of the ultimate parent imposed 15% tax, right? And if the answer to that question is yes, Japan and France, assuming they implement Pillar 2 consistently with the model rules, would say, okay, we don't have additional tax to impose. But if the ultimate parent entity, again, in this case, the U.S., has not imposed 15% tax, then Japan and France would raise their hand and say, Japanese affiliate, French affiliate, you owe more tax, You owe whatever tax you owe on your French income or your Japanese income, but you owe more tax to the French treasury or the Japanese treasury because your U.S. operations are considered low taxed under this computation. That is giving rise to some interest on Capitol Hill because companies are literally going to Congress, members of Congress, and saying, are you familiar with this OECD project? Because the way these rules are operating, it looks like it's potentially going to undermine the low-income housing credit, the research tax credit, or these other incentives, municipal bond interest, to use another one, right, that is obviously very popular um, with with members of Congress, tax exemption on municipal bonds. All of these things can drive your pillar two rate below 15%. And now you face the prospect that maybe France or Japan or some other country says, you're going to pay more tax because you're low taxed in the U.S., It's a very hard concept to explain to members of Congress, but when they hear about it, in general, they don't like it, right? Because they think, well, wait a minute, we did these incentives for you guys to engage in this behavior, and now that seems to be undermined. Well, also, so could, in your example, if this multinational had a sub in France and in Japan, could both of them say, oh, well, I'm going to do top off? Do they They, take each other into account? Like, how is that going to work? No, it's a great question. The model rules contemplate this, and they have essentially a sharing mechanism that says, well, we'll we'll apply this formula, and each of Japan and France gets to impose additional tax based on a formula. But again, here comes another problem with the model rules. The model rules assume everybody reads that formula the same way and applies the concepts the same way. So the formula is based on tangible assets and employees, and you essentially add up all your tangible assets and employees, and you look at everybody else's tangible assets and employees, and those are essentially the yardsticks that you use for determining how much tax you get to collect in your own jurisdiction, how much Japan gets to collect, how much France gets to collect. What's an employee, right? Do we think the entire world has a consistent definition of what's an employee? We have, you know, court cases (laughs) for 50 years trying to decide what is an employee, right? We know that this is something that comes up regularly and is litigated in this country. What is an employee? So the whole idea that everyone will apply these rules consistently, you know, it's a bit of a heroic assumption. And again, in the absence of some forcing mechanism to say, well, if you disagree, we're going to force you guys onto the same definition, it does give rise to concern. It has to give rise to concern. Well, and I guess, Pat, to go back to your point about Capitol Hill, if I'm the U.S. Congress, I'm thinking I have this poor multinational that's going to be penalized in these other countries. They're going to have to pay this tax anyway. I'd probably rather have them pay the tax in the U.S. Yes. And so the model rules themselves contemplate, and indeed the Treasury Department, one of the Treasury Departments, the U.S. Treasury Department's answer to this problem is, well, we should just have the U.S. introduce uh top-up tax that would apply within the U.S. So, and would apply based on Pillar 2 definitions. So if your Pillar 2 rate in the U.S. drops below 15%, instead of writing a check to France, you should write a check to the U.S. Treasury. At least then the money's not going to other countries. That's only a half answer, though, because, of course, if you're the member of Congress, you say, yeah, 
I want us to get the revenue as opposed to these other countries getting the revenue. But there's a reason I enacted this Mm -hmm. incentive. And it was so I would not get the revenue. Instead, you, the company, would get the revenue and you would apply it to this investment that I want you to make. I want you to engage in research. I created an incentive for you to engage in research. And so it's great that I, Congress, get the money. But essentially what I've undone, I've undone the benefit of the research credit and that, that is not solved by saying the U.S. gets to keep the money. That can only be solved, I believe, by actually going back to the model rules and saying, we need to think about the way we have constructed incentives in, or the way we've defined incentives in the model rules and maybe consider whether that definition should be changed. That, of course, raises the question of, well, are the model rules truly final? And as Jen alluded to earlier, the OECD's perspective on that has been, hey, the model rules are the model rules. We're Mm -hmm. we're done with that. Now it's up to the countries to implement them. So there's a lot to work through here. But some of this stuff has only come to light after the model rules were released. And you would hope that there would be an opportunity for them to kind of consider this and say, well, upon reflection, we should make revisions to the model rules. Up to this point, they've been resistant to that. Up to this point, they've been saying model rules are the model rules. They're they're done. And we're turning the page. And Pat, just you said this before, but I think it's worth emphasizing it wouldn't just be undoing the research credit, but it's undoing the research credit. It's undoing um, low income housing tax credits. It's undoing, you know, things that the policy in this in the U.S., you know, has created for a reason. So it's it's undoing a number of things that people might debate um, whether that, you know, is is best. Right. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting, I guess this is a question, is if I understand correctly, one of the reasons people would say you should be paying this minimum tax is like an equity issue. It's like a social issue, right? If we think about like broadly ESG, that making sure you're paying tax in jurisdictions where you're doing business, that is an important part of being an ESG friendly company which is a reason I would think that the EU is kind of pushing forward because obviously they're way ahead. But then, Jen, what you're saying is it also could go the other direction because some ESG-friendly policies, green energy or otherwise, are going to be undone by this. And so I think it just, again, that's like a high level of complexity with sort of these clashing objectives. I Very well said, Heather. I think what Pat said earlier, it's complicated, right? There's no simple answer here. And so, but what you said is true. If you start undoing, we've just talked about some of the U.S. benefits. Every jurisdiction Mm -hmm. has its version of that, right? I mean, research credits are everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. But, but in each jurisdiction for whatever their history and their people and their social needs have driven, there have been incentives created. And so you're 100% right. I think very well said. All right. So now we've completely scared our audience, particularly <laughs> probably the non-tax people listening who maybe even, you know, aren't even focused on this at all. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty here. So, Jen, as you're talking to companies, what are you suggesting that they sort of do right now? I'd really say two things. One is figure out what your gaps are. And when I say gaps, I mean, little GAP. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so take on that effort of modeling and assessing um, what this looks like for you. And in that process, figuring out what kind of data you need that you don't have, what's your system looking like, what might you be able to do? Just identifying, I think I'd say what the field of play is, like identifying what it is that you would need to tackle to be able to comply with this at any level. But in that process, you can also identify those issues that might bubble up for you of concern, which at a minimum is something to be talking about within management um, in a company. But it's also something that might influence what you want to talk about um, with the, for example, in a U.S. situation with somebody in Congress. Right. So I think the first thing is just modeling and figuring out what you've got and what you need. I think the second thing, or it's it's not necessarily a second thing. I think as part of that, Pat mentioned um, all of the, like the U.S., for example, considering entering or um, uh, implementing its own domestic top up tax. Well, the U.S. isn't the only country thinking about that. Right. So you see all of these domestic legislation efforts being undertaken now. We've been talking about this for a year. You and I have talked about this. The the state of change in the global mm-hmm. tax environment is impressive at 
you know, at a minimum. Um, and so that's no different now. And so in that, I think you really need to be thinking about and layering into that assessment I talked about, what might the impacts be of some of these other legislative changes that might be happening in connection, but around some of these pillars efforts. And closely aligned there, you know, the reality is this thing as are most of the domestic top-up taxes, it's focused on financial statements. And so this, if ever there was a time for collaboration between our accounting and tax professionals, this is it. I, I think I've probably said that in every podcast we've ever had, but it clearly is a call to action in this case because, you know, you've got issues like what does the pre-tax accounting reflect that tax people will need to understand in order to assess what the impact might be on a company? So I layer on all of that is just making sure you're communicating and collaborating within the organization so that all of the appropriate stakeholders are at the table and informed. Well, and I think, Jen, you know, just in listening to this whole thing, so much uncertainty, right? Because you have the model rules, which maybe could change. You have how they're going to be implemented in individual countries. You have these top-off taxes, everything else. And so I think sometimes it's easier to say, oh, I think I'm going to wait till a few more things are settled uh, because there's so many assumptions that are going to have to go into any modeling. But from the way you've described it, even if you have to make a ton of assumptions, even if you just say, I'm going to follow the model rules, I'm going to do whatever, just starting to gather that data, it feels like that alone is going to be a huge task that you don't want to be dealing with like a year from now or when, you know, more information comes out. I agree, Heather. And, you know, Pat walked through the countries that are right on the cusp. Yes, the EU, you've got Poland saying, hold on, um, but the UK is out. Australia. I mean, you you have movements. And the problem is, um, and we've talked about this a lot, it hits your financial statements. It changes in tax law. When I say it, they hit your financial statements well in advance of when they show up on a tax return. And so the reality is you start seeing them come through disclosure. Clearly, you don't account for it until enacted. But once enactment hits, now you have to account for it. You don't have another year to file your tax return to reflect it in your financial statements. It's at enactment. So I agree, Heather. I think it is a challenge. Um, and clearly, companies can find ways to to tackle that challenge, maybe focusing on the bigger jurisdictions that'll have the bigger impact and using those as a test case and then thinking about how you can um, uh, filter that through the organization, through the other entities. But I think you're right. I think waiting could be um, more of a complexity down the road than, than dealing with those assumptions, making some reasonable, thoughtful, considered assumptions today. Well, and it also sounds like even if I just think from a risk perspective, to your point that you're going to hit your financial statements before your tax returns, well, the risk seems like it exists now of something is going to change here. So companies at a minimum should be thinking about that from a disclosure perspective. Agreed. All right. So we've covered a huge amount of ground. I know you've gotten me more worried, so I'm sure many of our listeners as well. Uh so definitely, you know, we will continue to talk about this. Sounds like we probably will have some follow-up podcasts that to delve a little deeper. But in the meantime, I think it's enough for today. And so any uh, final words for our audience or additional advice right now? Maybe Pat, starting with you. Well, yeah, sure, Heather. Thanks. And, and look, there is so much to cover here. And I know it's daunting and probably terrifying. Um, I, you know, I think a couple of things. One is we're going to have to continue to watch developments from the OECD, but also developments from individual countries, as Jen mentioned, and as I talked about previously. You know, how will countries take this forward? What will it start to look like? That's sort of at the, I need to stay abreast of what's happening and how quickly it's moving. I think, though, if we accept, and I very much do, uh, it's not a question of whether these things happen, it's a question of when they happen. So mm -hmm. even if the timeline shifts a little bit to the right, these changes in some form, and we don't have perfect clarity, but we have a good deal of clarity of what they're going to look like, the basic financial statement concepts that, that Jen talked about. And so I think it's important to do a couple of things in that regard. One is, you know, figure out what your tax attributes are, right? So the starting point for your tax provision for purposes of pillar two is your tax provision on your financial statements. What does that look like? Where do I have relevant attributes? What jurisdictions are important for me? What jurisdictions are important from the materiality perspective of my company? And what jurisdictions do I have attributes? 
And then there's a data question, which is what data do I, can I readily get my hands on to do this analysis? And what do I not have today that I'm going to need? Because there's a lot of lead time associated with those conversations, right? When you have to go to the IT guys and say, I'm going to need this information and I'm going to need it in this form and I'm going to need it around this kind of a time frame. That's not a project that takes generally weeks. It's generally a project that takes months, and it costs a lot of time and money. And if you've spent time with an IT department, you know they've got a lot of people usually lined up outside their door asking them to do things, right? So you really need to get that conversation going now. So these are the things that I would be thinking about. All right. Lots to think about. Jen, anything to add? I'm just going to add collaboration. So all of the things that we've talked about, um, Pat's example, even with IT, perfect example, is this going to require a number of different stakeholders. Just make sure there's an education going on and then there is the collaboration to pull all of those thoughts together. Well, and I guess, Jen, I would add to that, since our audience is primarily I don't think our audience is primarily tax people. I think it's non-tax people is that this is not something that the non-tax people in our audience should be ignoring because to your point earlier, the tax team and the um, accounting, I'll call it gap accounting team are going to need to be sort of joined at the hip to really think this through. And, you know, there's a lot for companies from a strategy point of view to think about here too. So um, again, really appreciate all the insight and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Join me back here next week for a new lineup of shows. On Tuesday, we're closing out our crypto series with an episode on CBDCs. And on Thursday, we're back looking at the SEC's climate proposal, focusing on implementation considerations. And keep an eye out for the release of our audio companion of our In The Loop publication on the SEC's climate disclosure proposal. That'll be available tomorrow. So definitely check it out so that you never miss an episode. Subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.